Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Better late than never. <laughs> I'm the legendary Burl Bear co-host Mark C.G. Boyer. Sitting right there. Produced by Magic Matt Allen. True crime. Uncensored. Well, uh, we better get right to it. I hope, uh, I hope Marjorie Metzger is still on the line. Marjorie, you're there, young lady. Here. Thank you for waiting. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for waiting. And thanks to Matt for getting this up. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, there's a book you've got to buy immediately. Order it. It comes out uh, right at the beginning of the year. And I want you to be among the first to have it. It's called Hidden Demons by Marjorie Metzger. And uh, she's our guest today. A little truncated show, but we're going to get right into it. Uh, I would suppose that January 7th is not a day of big celebration uh, in Berkshire Hills, <laughs> is it, Marjorie? Well, uh, that was a day, and on January 7th, uh, 2003, will be 29 years since this occurred. Um, that was the day that a young girl was walking to school. It was seven o'clock in the morning, and as she's approaching the very center of downtown field, a man comes up to her, puts a gun in her rib, and tells her to get in his truck. Yipes. Well, what this girl did, 12-year-old, she faked an asthma attack. As she did that, she slumped down, got out of her backpack, and took off running. Wow. And this guy was flabbergasted. He gets in his truck. Just as he gets in his truck, somebody stopped at the light and witnessed the whole thing. Wow. So this was the beginning of the story, and it just goes on from there. Well, that's a brave little girl, I'll tell you that. Not only brave, I mean... What kid has a presence of mind when somebody has a gun in their side to fake an asthma attack when the kid never even had asthma? Smart kid. Must have been divine inspiration. <laughs> divine inspiration, or I don't know what it was, but this, this girl is a hero. And as it turned out, and we'll find out later, is that when they finally got the guy, the police officer who nabbed him, happens to be a friend of mine, and that's why I wrote the book, uh, turns out that this guy is a serial killer. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And um, he had murdered a boy from Pittsfield for three, uh, three years before. And after three years, they had no clues as to who had done it. He was abducted in Pittsfield, taken 200 miles away where his body was found. And for three years, they could not put it together. And this detective that I know put it together in an instant when he talked to this guy. Wow. So it was huge. That guy must and be it was brilliant. Also the, it was also the same day that his daughter nabbed somebody. So... I thought it was a terrific story of father and daughter both nabbing criminals on the same day. Well, it was a weird day, weird day anyway. But wasn't that the same day that there was a, a college student who celebrated his birthday by buying an assault rifle and opening fire on a campus? 
that was the first day, the opening of his trial for that. Oh. That had happened previously, but the DA had just picked a jury the day before, and the jury had gone to the scene of the crime down in Great Barrington to see where the shooting had occurred. The DA came back to his office. This was the biggest case he had ever had, was his school shooting. And it was one of the first of the college campus school shootings. He comes back to his office, and one of the uh, detectives comes in, state police detective comes in, tells him that a girl was, there's an attempted abduction of a girl in Pittsfield. He says, where? And she says, look out the window. It's right outside your window. Wow. So here he's facing that next, this was on a Friday, next Monday, beginning the biggest trial of his career, and then he gets this one. So everything came together on that day. But what also, wasn't there two young girls accosted in the changing room at the local pool? <laughs> yeah, and that's where the, his, this policeman's daughter came in. She was working as a lifeguard there. And it was a snowy day. There were very few kids in the after-school program. So she let the kids swim and, you know, just have fun in the pool. And then she said, you know, you better come get dressed because your parents might be here early to pick you up. So the girls are in the changing room, and they hear a noise in the back room. And they look in, and they see this guy, and he's performing lewd and lascivious acts in the back room. So the kids get dressed, run downstairs, and tell Amy, who was the lifeguard. She comes up, they're looking around, and they find the guy. He comes downstairs. He takes off running out the door, and Amy goes after him. Now, she happened to run track, and she was fast, and she caught him. <laughs> she grabs him. And meanwhile, other people from the girls' club come, and they surround the guy. They bring him back to the girls' club, and she tries to call her father, who is a police officer, to tell him, because she's kind of traumatized by, I don't know if she's traumatized, but her adrenaline's running from doing this. You know, she drags this guy back, and her father, she couldn't get through to the police department, couldn't understand what's going on. Finally, she gets through to her father. And it's the first time ever her father said to her, look, Amy, I can't talk to you. There's something big going on here. Can it wait? And she says, yeah, we'll talk tomorrow. So meanwhile, you know, she does this, and her father has nabbed a serial killer. Jeez, what a day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, things like that don't usually happen around here. No, I mean, what's the population there? Uh... Well, in Pittsfield itself, uh, it can range anywhere. Probably at that time, it was maybe around thirty-five to 40,000 people in Pittsfield. Huh. And the Berkshires is a quiet town. I mean, this is Norman Rockwell area. Yeah, it sounds like Walla Walla, Washington, where I grew up. Well, you, don't, you, know, you don't have those kind of things happen in a town like that. But when they do happen, all hell breaks loose. Well, the thing is that, you know, you have these people hanging around. And you have this guy from, you know, this, this school shooter from down at um, Simon's Rock College. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Simon's Rock College, but it's a part of Bard College. And it accepts students who 
don't finish high school because they're very, very smart and they do better in an environment where they're pushed a little in college. So they're right. young college kids that go there. So you have this kid who seems like he's really smart. He's there on a scholarship. He's a great musician. You know, you wouldn't expect him doing something like this. The guy that walked into the girls' club, he comes in well-dressed, you know, says he's there to pick up his kid. He looked fine. They didn't expect anything. And you have the serial killer who looks like a little nebbish. And, uh, you know, nobody thinks that this guy is, uh, you know, they think he's yeah, you know, a little people odd, you don't suspect. I mean, well, you know, why would anybody? I mean, we're talking 1994. We're talking here in the Berkshires. And why would anybody even think of people being dangerous? I mean, you don't think like that. It's not in your, your uh, vocabulary of thought. Uh, yeah, Pearl. Yeah, Mike has a question here. When I uh, I came really late in the family, and I was uh, ten when I was born. When I was in high school. Yeah. Um, I took the neighborhood around in the summer, and all the kids had to say these were all you know uh, eight through twelve year olds. All they had to say uh, was uh, uncle. Uh, my Sharon's brother has taken us out right. and I'd get 20 bucks and we would go wherever, movie, uh, whatever we did. There was a, uh, uh, out, uh, you know, up there. And that's all changed. I mean, you, you can't do that anymore and it's sad. Yeah, well, the, there were probably things going on that you didn't even hear about. There's one thing I learned about growing up in a small town is you still had well, those kind of things happen, but they hushed them up you know, as, as best they could to keep people from freaking out. Now, with the 24-hour news cycle, and uh, if it bleeds, it leaves news, you're going to find out everything, all the creepy stuff. Mm. And that's pretty creepy. Well, what did she? What did the daughter do with this guy that she ran down and, and captured when her dad couldn't uh, come deal with it? But did well, she take him to the cops? What happened was other people from the girls' club came down after her, and they surrounded the guy. They brought him back to the girls' club. They locked him in the office and called the police. So he was okay. I mean, they got him. And, um, you know, he was... Uh, you know, a bit embarrassed, I would say. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, sorry, kids. <laughs> Didn't mean for you to see that. <laughs> yeah. We have all the places to pick. That that probably wasn't the smartest place to do loot yeah. in the city. Well, it wasn't the smartest place for Lewis Lent to try to kidnap a kid. Right, I mean, when I say in dead center of town, it was at the circle where North, North, South, East, and West Street came together in the exact center of town, right under the window of the DA's office. <laughs> now, how smart was that? That wasn't very smart at all. Well, you know, I no, really think not. these guys are geniuses. <laughs> no, he was well, probably focused on kidnapping the kid. Well, you know, actually, it's interesting because he's gotten away with a lot of stuff for a lot of years. And I think he did this because he was able to stay under the radar. You know, he, he was like, you know, I, I quote in the book uh, a line from a song from Chicago, Mr. Cellophane. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And Mr. Cellophane, you can look right through me, walk my, by me, and never know that I'm there. Yeah. And he was that kind of guy. So he had gotten away with stuff for a long time. And as things progressed, you know, he became um, more and more emboldened. Yes. And I guess when you get too emboldened, that's what and then yeah. We you were know, talking about that just a week or so ago on the show. It's called criminal pride. They used to plan it down to the dense detail. And then they start thinking the reason they don't get caught is it's just them. They have this power that makes them invincible or invisible. And that's when they get caught. Because they do something well, also, stupid like that. I think that. there's another element. I think they have escalating impulses. And the more they do, the more excited they get by it. And these impulses get stronger and stronger, and it's almost like they can't control them. Yeah. And when they used to have maybe some control, and, and they're emboldened with those two factors, I think that, you know, plays into it. I think you're absolutely right. It's interesting, I think when Caitlin Rother uh, wrote a book, Body Parts, I think is the name of it, there's a serial killer walks into the police department with a woman's breast in his pocket, plops it down on the table and says, Hi, I'm a serial killer. You guys are really lame. You haven't caught me yet. I mean, he got so fed up that he wasn't getting any notoriety that he he came in and confessed. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's, that's something that some of them have, and I think some of them, you know, just... It's survival. It's the way they've had to survive their whole life. And, um, you know, they'll do anything, anything they have to to get by. I mean, once this guy is in custody, he's lying through his teeth about everything. But this is his modus operandi his whole life. And this is how he's gotten by. Whatever it takes to survive. Well, what does it take to survive to kidnap a little kid? I mean, there must be some sort of compulsion. I don't know what he did with Well, it is. It is. You know, it's compulsion. And... You know, as, as horrible as this man is, and as horrible as these acts are, when you start looking back, and I mean, actually, while I was waiting for you to come on, I'm reading Murder in the Family. Oh, isn't that a horrible story? Well, it's a horrible story, and you know, um, I went to the library and I said, uh, please get me any book written by Burl Bearer because I want to read what he's written. So this is a book that they got me. I just got it yesterday and just started it. And you can see, I mean, I'm reading your book and I'm seeing so much, so many similarities with a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're either damaged and shipping and handling quite often. Yeah, they're damaged and damaged early on. And my background is in social work and mediation. And I just, as horrible as it is, and as sensational as this is, um, I just say, these poor people that get damaged so early in life, they don't stand a chance. Well, and then they take it out on everybody else. Yeah, it's really tragic. And wreak havoc. There's a, a Broken Doll is a book I, I wrote about a fellow, uh, Richard Matthew Clark. It is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Uh, he came from a family. Uh, he was very, very close to his mother. Uh, she gets killed uh, in an accident, and the family is totally split up, and he's sent to live with an aunt. 
and he's so traumatized by the death of his mother. And the aunt says, I know you'd like to be my little boy, but I already have children of my own. And from that moment on, I mean, he so desperately wanted to be wanted that he just shut down. And from that moment on, for the rest of his life, he was never open, he was never sober, he was never present in his own life from that moment on. And he did horrible things. But you can see right where the damage started, right where the harm was intensified, and the kid didn't have a chance. He needed right, his victims. Right. Yeah, so um, they don't give other people a chance. They didn't have it, and the other people aren't going to get it either. Yeah. Uh, there's a, I keep on plugging my own books, but I was so fascinated by the, the whole topic of psychopaths that I spent a lot of time communicating with Dr. Robert Hare, who is the uh, world's leading expert on psychopaths, and he helped me a lot with actually with murder in the family. I think I, I credited him in that book. Uh, and then the next one I did was about the two people with psychopathic behavior. Uh, and it comes down to there's two ways you can, you can get them. One is they're born, shall we say, minus, uh, with a birth defect, minus the emotion chip, it's like a brain defect. The other is you can manufacture them. You can make them by head injury plus trauma, sexual trauma, emotional trauma, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and you can mention, in the particular case of uh, Headshot, where you had two psychopaths who were best friends, one was manufactured. And uh, this is a tragic story. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very, very sad situation. And, 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 you can, and you see, I mean, you've written and know enough about this, probably a whole lot more than I do about this, that um, there's, there's no remorse. Remorse doesn't exist. No. It's no and different whether it's carving a turkey or carving a person, they don't see the difference. No, it, it, there's no remorse. It's just like an instant gratification. Yeah, it's like Brent Turvey says uh, serial killers and psychopaths aren't that complex. It's very simple. It's like going to a Chinese restaurant. They tried it, they liked it, they did it again. That's yeah, right. Or you could say, like a Chinese restaurant, they ate, and half hour later they're hungry again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, did, uh, so you had this is your first true crime uh, book? Yes. So uh, um, I thought with this story of Amy and Owen both um, nabbing criminals on the same day, it might make an interesting little short story or something. I'd never written anything before. Well, congratulations, because the, the book is getting rave, rave advanced reviews. And, uh, yeah, well, what happened was, I uh, said, first I went to Owen, and I said, would it be okay if I write something about you? And his wife said, oh, he's very private, he won't want that. And when I asked him, he said, okay. You know, so I said, and the book evolved. I mean, I didn't know about the... Um, shooter, I mean, I knew about the shooter on the college campus, but I didn't know that the trial was starting on the same day. And it was only by talking to the uh, DA at the time, interviewing him, that he told me, yeah, we were starting that trial that day. So my whole focus of the book changed. Yeah. It became more, it, more widespread. There was more going on. 
Uh, yeah, it's, so, it's amazing. And, so, and everything plays into everything else because the emotions yeah. carry over, you know. So yeah. The vibe, like, like skipping it's not rocks like on water. It's not like writing a novel where you're creating it. You're, you're researching it. Yeah. And I found the research fascinating, and I'm sure you've gone through this, too. It took me five years. It yeah. was almost agonizing getting some of this information. Of course, I didn't get everything I wanted. Um, because the FBI wouldn't talk to me. I really wanted to talk to the profilers, but I was able to read some of the stuff that they had written. Um, and there were other things that I, didn't want, I couldn't get. And there are things that people just don't want to find for you, yeah. or people that don't want to talk to you, or people who are no longer alive anymore to talk to you about it. Oh, it could even get worse. Trust me. I had one out uh, a book where I had wonderful material from two brothers that gave me extensive interviews. And then my publisher, which was Kensington at that time, wanted a release from them. They said, you know, I'm going to be quoted in this book. I understand there's no money coming to me, you know, from the author or the publisher. And they refused to sign it. Money from me to use their quotes. And I really needed their information. So I was going to have to, you know, like, use the information but not have it sourced to them, which was rather inconvenient. Fortunately, their sister found out about it. She was estranged from the family. She just said, take all their quotes and attribute them to me. Because if you interviewed me, I would have told you the same stuff. <laughs> so... Well, that, you fucked out on that one. Yeah, I did. But uh, that could be a problem. And I'll tell you something else if you go to do some more of these. Even though there is the Freedom of Information Act, and even though police reports belong to the public, because, you know, their, their salaries come from our taxes, there are some states, such as Kansas, where if you put in a request for a police report, all you'll get is the cover page. You won't get yes. the actual report. It depends on if the that. police chief mm -hmm. wants to share it or not. So, uh, well, I finally, uh, you know, with COVID and everything, things slowed down. But I did find one man who worked at the DA's office who was willing to go through wherever they stored these files. Mm -hmm. And he brought back to the DA's office 16 boxes of records for me to look through. And that was really the final information that I needed to finish up what I had been looking for. Wow. And I thank him. I mean, he was so nice. We would go to the DA's office. I was masked. He was masked. We'd sit at this long conference table. I was on one end. He was on the other end. And I would go through things, pull things out that I wanted copied. He'd take it. They'd copy it. They'd redact what needed redacting. But he was wonderful to do that. And I, you know, it, it was really, I didn't think I would get this stuff until this guy came along, so you never know. Yeah, you don't. I walked out the same way in Murder in the Family. I was up, went up to Alaska to work on that. There was a wonderful fellow there that took things, went, went to the back room and copied them all off for me. And uh, so what do I owe you? And he just winked at me and handed it to me. <laughs> Yeah, well, sometimes they like the story to get out and yeah. to be written well. Yeah, so sometimes you luck out and sometimes you just run into a wall where for some reason they don't want to tell you anything. Well, I'm let me tell you something else. Um, this is still an ongoing investigation. 
28 and a half years later. Yeah. So the people that are doing that did not want to talk to me, and they told people not to talk to me. So what were they investigating that, 28 years later? Or what are they supposed to be investigating 28 years later? Well, they're trying to find some of the bodies. Oh. And they, you know, he won't give that up. And... Um, my, I, I, I don't know what they're investigating. I mean, they could be investigating more murders that he did that, you know, I don't know because they wouldn't talk. But I know they're looking for the bodies. Now, I, re- I wrote to um, Louis Lent, that was a serial killer, in prison. And I wrote him twice. He didn't answer me. The third letter I wrote him, he did answer me. Kind of a snippy letter. But the next day I get a call from some man was a friend of his, and he says, Louie wanted me to check up on you. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. <laughs> what uh, does that mean? <laughs> he's not checking up on me. I'm checking up on him. He says, well, Louie wants to know if you want to know where he buried the bodies. And I said, uh, no, I'm not a police officer. I just wanted to talk to him. I wanted to get his take on, on this. But after that, I said, uh-uh. I, I, I don't want to deal with these people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, strange to deal with them. I very seldom, although I've wanted to talk to some of these people, I only talked to one of them, and that was Rhonda Glover, who uh, shot her boyfriend 13 times with a Glock 9mm because she believed that he and George W. Bush were having homosexual sex with clones in a cave under the house. Now... To me, that would qualify as a mental health issue. But I would she, think. Yeah, but she didn't want that. She didn't want people to think she was nuts. So she, uh, <laughs> so she's in prison for 60 years instead of in a mental institution. But I went well. to see her in person, and it was very unnerving. Uh, even though she was on one side of the plexiglass, that was on the other. Uh, I could tell she was real easy to read. She had the attention span of a goldfish. You know, oh, look, there's a castle. Oh, look, there's a castle. Uh, uh, I could tell if I said something that pissed her off, I could tell if she could have got through that glass and killed me, she would have. So I would immediately praise her for something. Oh, and you were so smart to do this, that. And she'd light up like a Christmas tree. You know, and I came out of there after spending a few hours with her. And my daughter was waiting for me outside the prison. She could tell I was kind of shook up. She said, Dad, she can't come get you. She's in prison for another 60 years. She said, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, well, this guy was telling me that they were going to try to get him out, you know, and I and I didn't want to burst his bubble and tell him that there's no chance of parole. This guy's never getting out, but, you know, they can uh, fool themselves thinking that, whatever, whatever keeps them going, I guess. Yeah, well, sometimes but they can... They you know can, that, uh, that when you interview somebody like this, you're not going to get any truth out of them. Well, sometimes you do, because they like to talk. Uh, some, no, sometimes, well, I don't think I would have with this guy. No, you never know, because uh, sometimes you know, they will they will tell us, the, an author, things they won't tell the cops. Well, I, I think there's also a gender thing with this, too. I, I don't think this guy... I think this guy hated women. So That's I don't possible. think that would have worked for me. Yeah. You could go with this and say, tell me how much you hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I can take it. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I can take it. You're on the other side of the place of glass. Go <laughs> That's ahead. right. I'm free. You're not. <laughs> That's right. Go ahead. Tell me you hate me. <laughs> so, I uh, try another one. 
Yeah. Uh, you sound like you're 12 years old, so I don't know how old you really are. <laughs> you sound very young. Oh, me? Yeah, you sound like you're 16, maybe 17. You sound really well, young. Well, let me just tell you that I'm a baby boomer. Well, so am ah, I. so are we. <laughs> yeah. So, so are we. Yeah. Uh, couple of nice Jewish boys. Nice Jewish boys. Yeah. Couple of yentas in the background. <laughs> We're baby, baby boomer, uh, baby boomer, nice Jewish boy from a town about the size of the one where you mentioned. Where you'll you'll appreciate this, I think. They didn't allow Jews at the country club, of course. They didn't allow Jews in the Elks Club, even though the international president of the Elks Club was Jewish. <laughs> you couldn't join the Elks Club in Walla Walla <laughs> if you were Jewish. So my dad went 15 miles away to a town about the size of the table I'm sitting at that had an Elks Club where they take anybody. My dad joined there just so every Tuesday night we could go to the Elks Club for dinner. <laughs> What's the name of the book? <laughs> name of the book is. Da, 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 da. Tell the name of your book, Margie. Hidden Demons. Hidden Demons. That's right. And the actual yeah. release date. Well, this is a small town. Yeah. Yeah. It's Marjorie Metzger. Marjorie Coming Metzger. Coming out the uh, beginning of January. Yeah, so you can. Uh, the January is the release date. Yeah, and, Thank uh, you very much. You can order from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, from Wild Blue Press, I believe. Thank you, Margie. Stay well. Thanks for hanging on with us. Hidden Demons is the name of the book. Available January 2023 from Wild Blue Press. Buy it, read it, believe it. Our guest is author Christopher Murray. His new book is called Unusual Punishment. Chris, tell us about the first time you went to Washington State Penitentiary. Well, I was uh, I was uh, much younger then. It was 1976, mm-hmm. uh, hot day in July. I had uh, gotten my first job after finishing architecture school with this uh, social and health services agency that was responsible for, among other things, the state's prisons. And uh, I went over there with a the head architect from the office, uh, and our job was to take a look at these uh, gang showers, or this big gang shower, in 8-Wing, big cell block at uh, the penitentiary, where they wanted to see if we could come up with an architectural solution to, you know, the assaults, rapes, and occasional murders that were happening. Yeah, that's a problem. When I was younger and living in Walla Walla, back before they had prefixes on phone numbers, you just had like four numbers and that was your phone. Uh, My phone number and the prison's phone number contained the same numbers, just in slightly different order. So every time they had a riot, our phone was ringing off the hook. And well, I bet had, that was exciting. Oh, well, they had several riots back in, in those days. And then uh, Bobby Ray was kind of the head honcho there. Yeah, he came in after the riot of 56. Mm-hmm. And did you know that he had uh, earlier married the uh, previous warden's daughter? No, that's kind of slid him right in there, didn't it? That Yeah, that did help his job prospects. <laughs> so uh, what was his regime like? Well, you know, when he started... Um, he was the youngest uh, superintendent or warden, whatever you want to call him, of a maximum security prison in uh, the United States. And he was there for 20 years, and when he left, he was the longest-serving uh, warden of a maximum security prison in the United States. And it was, uh, it was a mixed bag. Uh, the first 14 years, from 56 to 70, were kind of normal as, you know, 
normality, what passes for normality in a prison goes. Uh, so they, they had their incidents, but uh, things ran pretty smoothly. You know, it didn't make the headlines of the newspapers. Uh, uh, you know, it was pretty inexpensive to operate. And so, you know, he, he was considered to be a, a good manager by what the criteria of the day were. But when the 70s came along, a whole bunch of things happened. And um, and BJ, as they called him, uh, Bobby J. Ray, uh, was a fighter pilot in World War II. He, he enlisted out of, you know, I don't know, freshman year in college or something like that, and um, was a was an ace. He was a decorated firefighter with seven kills in World War II, and he may, remained a weekend warrior. And so he was uh, he was flying planes. Uh, he was current, he told me, up through the F-100, which I believe was the first uh, fighter jet that went supersonic speed in the uh, Air Force. So he was gone on weekends for that, and, and he, you know, he raised his horses there and raced them at the county fair and uh, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, he was quite a well-known uh, feature around Walla Walla in those days. Now, you have a book. This is the reason we had you on the show. We're having you on the show. You have this uh, very highly reviewed new book called Unusual Punishment, which has a picture on the front of a guy riding a motorcycle, like like a, you know heavy-duty dude, that's uh, inside the prison grounds. <laughs> yeah, that That's in the big together. yard. They had a, uh, a building uh, that had been previously vacant, an old uh, powerhouse that uh, uh, was no longer used, uh, and they converted that to their club and their workshop where they built choppers. They had every tool imaginable. They had 55-gallon drums of gasoline. They had acetylene torches. And uh, uh, Warden allowed them to, uh, you know, drive them around in the big yard from time to time. And this guy in the in the picture was the current president of the motorcycle club. And uh, you know, the towers in the background in the spirit. That picture was in a book called Concrete Mama, a photojournalism book that came out several decades ago. Yeah, it's a hard book to get because it, it's been out of print for a long time. You can buy it on Amazon for. You know, one, two, three, four hundred, five hundred dollars. It's it's a photojournalism book. Yeah, yeah. It was that was taken in uh, uh, 1978, kind of the low point of the. Yeah, of, I remember uh, some of the photographs of uh, <laughs> in there. It's some pretty strange ones. Oh, you bet. And this was this was kind of an iconic one. And I, I tra- well, the photographer died in an accident in 1990, so I tracked down his uh, brother and sister who have the rights and. There was a lifers club where, you know, they had the keys to their club. They had uh, their own uh, nice grassy area with picnic tables and shrubbery and and um, a chain-link fence with a gate, which they also had the only keys to. Um, you know, the bikers had their club. Uh, there was a group called the BPFU, the Black Prisoners Forum Unlimited, and they had their own um, little, uh, well, not so little, um, club area and uh, uh, kind of an outdoor grassy area behind that. And and there were other groups, too. The Native Americans had their group. The Chicanos had their group. Uh, and these groups did not always get along, particularly when uh, the drug trade became very big in there. i got to stop uh, you for a second, Chris. Yeah. Because as you're going on, you're describing a resort in Hawaii. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The only reason I can think is that uh, that he would do this 
is that once he allowed them to have their uh, various club areas, um, they really did need to be secure because these groups did not always see eye to eye, and uh, they they didn't have enough staff to to staff the prison properly to begin with, uh, and so they certainly didn't have any staff to add to the you know the security of these club areas. And the only the only people with enough manpower were the inmates themselves, and so. I believe that's how come they got the keys. Well, but did it, work? it led to did a lot of big incident in the prison auditorium um, that uh, should have been a bloodbath um, where he, there was several hundred inmates, black and white, all heavily armed with you know, chains and clubs and shanks and razor blades and what have you, um, and they locked them in there. Um, and this one inmate... Um, got up on the stage, one of the convict leaders, and said, you know, what the hell are we doing here? You know, the man's locked us in here, and he's expecting this to be a bloodbath. This ain't no way to, to conduct ourselves. And then a black leader got up. Uh, uh, both of them were uh, champion boxers in, in the prison, so they, they commanded a lot of respect. And pretty soon the whole thing mellowed out, and that change kind of made BJ think that uh, the relaxation of of various regulations uh, might actually work. Um, and then in in September 1971 was Attica. You remember Attica? Mm-hmm. 43 people died in one day at Attica uh, in New York. Uh, installation banquet was one month after Attica, and it was attended by the New York Times and Newsweek and CBS Evening News and um, um, B.J. Ray, you know, was on the national news. He had his picture in Life magazine, and and it, it kind of went to his head, I think. And uh, he decided that he was going to make this thing work, and it worked for oh, some more months, and then things turned kind of sour. What uh, what was the souring phase? Well, the the first thing was uh, B.J. in his wisdom. Uh, had also started a program with the kind of improbable name of Take a Lifer to Dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he gave permission, uh, against advice of a whole lot of people, to let this one inmate out who had a long history of, of both escape attempts and successful escapes. And... Uh, uh, this guy went to dinner at this, uh, uh, you know, it's a staff person from the penitentiary's house, excused himself to go to the bathroom, escaped from the um, bathroom window, and a couple weeks later uh, was admitted to a, a hospital in uh, Tacoma with 10 gunshot wounds. Uh, he'd been in a gun battle where there were a lot of murders, as well as these murders that occurred uh, for people who are you know, out on the streets temporarily or theoretically temporarily. Um, this is Mark this Boyer period, has a question for you. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, during this period of time, um, there was a lot of violence of inmate to inmate, but there was a tremendous amount of uh, public intrusion into the prison um, that students from the colleges, parties, uh, social gatherings... Um, were uh, were any of the um, citizens in danger during this time? Um, you know, I don't know of any incident where you know uh, 
any of the visitors were physically harmed. I do know that several of the women who came to visit the penitentiary wound up impregnated by enthusiastic prisoners.